If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This message is intended as a reminder that we are not licensed professionals, not psychiatrists or psychologists. If you have a serious problem, please seek professional help. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. There's some damsels in the DM. Yes, queen. <laughs> Tell us what's the vibe. Uh-huh. What's the there's some damsels in the DM. Yeah. Yeah. Please tell us what's the vibe. DMs, DMs, yeah, we see them. Yeah, we read them. DMs, DMs, we don't need them. We just leave them. Please. Yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Hello and welcome to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. I'm Lauren. And I'm Alejandro. And today we are fortunate to be interviewing Jocelyn Glenn, producer and certified sexpert. Jocelyn, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you both for inviting me. I wish everybody was able to see your makeup and your look right now. You are an icon. I know. should be embodying what you got going on i i know it too it's like beforehand i'm like alejandro's gonna come on here he's gonna look so good and i'm just not gonna put in any work but <laughs> what's funny is that i was really just scrambling for about 15 to 20 minutes being like well how am i gonna like present my makeup how am i gonna do this because Prior to recording today's episode, I was actually with Jocelyn at a Latinx screenwriting slash filmmaker networking event out in Highland Park. It was so much fun, Jocelyn. I mean, do you want to share your experience? No, go fuck yourself. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. I was <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. It was so fun seeing people again, connecting with writers that I've been following already and seeing their actual height, their actual face, lower half of the face and their actual body types and connecting with, oh my goodness, so many new people. I'm an introvert and I kind of surprised myself with how engaged I was with everybody. My energy is just sucked by all of the social vampires out there. Mm. I'm going to leave at this time and make this excuse. Um, That's usually the case, but I just kept going and more people kept coming, you know, as you can attest, right? You know, it was a slow start, but people kept coming in. And we had like an after party, so to speak. And Alejandro and I, we just came back from that and we had some delicious grub over there. So amazing. Can you guys tell us a little bit about the project you worked on together? I believe it's El Marijuano. Yes. And we heard a little bit about it when you um, told us like right after filming and it sounded super exciting, but I'd love to know like how you met and what both of your work was on it. Absolutely. So I feel like I had already been following Alejandro. I think I'd seen his name passed around and I thought, okay, well, obviously I'm completely for following anybody that's queer and Latinx. But we also went through an audition process. So essentially the director, Andy Cervantes, and I were looking for both of the main characters, uh, Juan and Billy. And we were surprised with the turnout that there were people actually believed in this project and actually wanted to come out and audition and share their talents with us. And Alejandro was one of the the best candidates that we had. Of course he was. Of course, right? (laughs) Duh. Didn't have to tell me. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he's 
he's getting it right. He's in the acting class. And I think that's just, people are recognizing it slowly, but surely, but he's got a lot of talent and it was really apparent to us. Andy, the director slash writer and I, we were just, we were so in sync with our decisions. You know, as soon as every person came into audition, we looked at each other and we said very few words. It was as if we were reading each other's minds. And it was a unanimous yes when we saw Alejandro each time. He came in so prepared, so gay, so ready. Um, And And the last time we asked him to to read as both characters. And it really solidified him as the role of Billy. So let me give some context to what the film is. So El Marijuano is a short film based in Northeast LA where there are two queer Chicano best friends, Juan and Billy. Juan is the like neighborhood pothead. Billy is Juan's long-term friend or long-time friend who has a little bit more structure in his life, who did college, who's entered white dominant institutions, but he's between both worlds of his community, but also like the white dominant community. He He's an interesting character and he's really grounded by Juan, played by Danny Marquez, who you guys can also go out and support. Amazing so, actor, amazing talent, writer as well. Absolutely. And you guys were just, you had such chemistry when we you came in for the last audition together and you read together. We knew that you two had to be involved in the project in some way. So I don't know if you want to add to that, Alejandro, but that's basically how we met. I remember actually coming onto the note of your existence when we did the, it was like a talent networking thing through Disney. I remember catching your name and I remember wanting to catch you on social media. So then I was like not creepily searching Instagram, but I was definitely like, this person I need to follow and I Whenever will stay. Whenever it's not creepily, then you know it is creepily. <laughs> <laughs> but so I was like, I was trying to like, you know, those who I was able to take note of their full names uh, during the meeting, because you know how information is just passed so quickly. I was like, if I can take note of the name and at least like find them on Instagram, let me like make a connection, follow and like, you know, we'll see where it goes. And it was through that and one of your stories I think that I found out about the call for actors that's kind of how it led me in contact with you and I love that the way you describe it as that you like heard of Alejandro's name being passed around because I worked with Alejandro on his first filmmaking debut and it just makes me so happy to see like the culmination of that and where he is now and him going on this filmmaking journey (laughs) it's exciting (laughs) it's exciting to not only work with talented individuals like the both of you but (laughs) also to connect with other individuals who are as equally passionate about storytelling as we are at events that we were just yeah. at. But enough about networking. Our focus today <laughs> is Justin Glenn. Please tell us a little bit about you and your career as a, a sex expert, a, a sex educator. How, how did you, why were you inspired to take that career path? I will start from like a pretty broad lens. I feel like a lot of trans people, I, I am a trans woman. And um, I think that a lot of trans people from a really young age are so curious about, um, I think like social norms, gender norms, because we find ourselves at so many like forks in the road where we think we, we, we feel like we're so divided between our friends who are probably um, whatever gender we identify as and everybody else who's saying what we're doing is weird and wrong. So I've always been so interested in like gender relations and whatnot. I don't think it was until probably college where, you know, I thought, okay, well, this is something I can take to another level. So I started taking, well, actually I learned about certain school or means of, you know, getting a certificate because I I looked this up for hours. I'm a night owl. So I was doing this in the middle of the night and I'm like, okay, well, I'm interested in this. So there's the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and I think therapists. And there's like an international one that you can kind of get certified through. And that just requires taking some classes. I had already taken a few classes at my alma mater, UCLA, and I essentially elected to use some of the courses I'd taken there and satisfied some credits. And so I was already kind of like ahead of the curve in a way. We also had to do training. So what I would do is I would go to certain schools, certain workplaces, and I would provide training on like gender and sexuality 101, you know, just I think a lot of workplaces, I think they value little by little uh, diversity and inclusion. So um, especially when there are more 
LGBTQ plus people feeling more comfortable to come out in their workplaces. I went to a lot of places and I fulfilled my hours despite going to schools and whatnot. And it's, it's kind of a rough thing, but you realize that kids and adults alike are just as curious too. You know, they're asking some of the same questions. And I thought that that was one of the most interesting things. Kids and adults alike um, asking the same questions. And the fact that there's a trans person right in front, of, in front of them that's presenting this to them. I'm so used to people asking me some of the most like invasive things in private. When Alejandro and I were at the event, I told somebody, hey, I'm trans. And then they pulled me aside and they asked me some really uncomfortable questions that I'm used to. But when they're oh, wow. in a group setting, they ask some interesting, like broader questions. And then maybe after the event, they may ask me like more personal questions like, oh, you know, there's some like yellow discharge that's coming um, out of me. Like, what do I do with that? And then directing them to the proper like places, maybe check out a clinic, you know, so on and so forth. So long and the short of it is I got my certification from double A sect and the rest is kind of history. Wow. So how do you pivot from trying to be consoling to the person who's asking for your advice in that moment, but then also like kind of create that boundary of how do you navigate a situation like that? I think it's important to set boundaries. What, you know, set it, boundaries are important in general, you know, in, in bed, uh, in the bedroom, it's important to set boundaries. It's important to set boundaries um, amongst your family and friends, so on and so forth. So just saying, hey, that's, uh, that makes me feel uncomfortable, but I'm pretty sure you can find a transgender YouTuber who will have no problem answering that, you know, and that's their platform. They get to do whatever they want. They're already discussing it. But for the most part, actually, I am um, very open. I'm an open book, but I know if I'm getting the same questions, it's coming out of not just curiosity, but like sexual curiosity, mm. you know, trans women are no doubt about it. We're very fetishized and so some people when they I may be the first person that they know of that's trans that they're talking to and I say that you know of because some people may have walked across or been in the bathroom with a trans person and they probably didn't Mm -hmm. know because why the fuck should you yeah (laughs) but I'm the first one that they're talking to and they feel like they can go so unfiltered with me and again I have to just limit it to certain things if I know that like They're only asking certain questions. Say, for example, it's usually genitalia related. I say, okay, well, would you ask that to your grandma or so on and so forth? It's a really tricky issue. I know that I have to also protect myself a lot too. More often than not, I feel safe enough to answer certain questions about maybe my sex life. I think what also one of the most frequent questions I get asked is like, how do you have, how do you have sex? Which is. Oh my God. Yeah. It's such a basic thing but also like how the fuck do you have sex you're probably doing it wrong yeah you're probably not pleasing your partner and that's something that you need to address with your partner and or with your therapist and or with your medical provider yeah we need to stop treating trans people like they're these aliens or like they're not they're, they're different than anybody else exactly I completely agree with that I was just curious how do you navigate that sort of what seems like a careful line with privacy, with the relationships that you have with your clients and navigating them through these transitions? I try to address people at a human level. I, that first and foremost, I try to um, try to configure like where they're coming from when asking that question or where they're coming from in general, right? Maybe this person didn't have, uh, I'm sorry if you're hearing dogs in the background, that's my neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) I might see like, oh, maybe this person, they came from like a really, like um, really conservative household, right? And they really just don't know. And that's unfortunate. It really is. I wish they had people in their lives that really normalize this, this kind of topic. It's such a broad topic, but I do look at each person on a human level And I try to configure where they're coming from. If I know that they're coming from like a really uh, dark or potentially toxic or negative space, um, I try to find a way out of it, right? And I try to direct them to any kind of resources that they might need. Fortunately, I'm kind of like, part of my brain is encyclopedia. Part of it is always just like thinking about food. Um, (laughs) When is your birthday? Are you a Virgo? (laughs) Very close. I am a Scorpio. Uh, All of my best friends are Scorpios. (laughs) (laughs) I have like a Scorpio thing that totally tracks. (laughs) The reason I ask about the Virgo is because I understand that they have like encyclopedic memories and like, or they have memories of an elephant is what I always hear. Like That's amazing. I do love elephants. But um, 
I think it was serendipitous that I came on here, Lauren, because yes, I'm a Scorpio. Let's be best friends. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes uh, if somebody, you know, feels like a sense of urgency to talk about something unfiltered, I will like sit down with them and have like a meal with them or coffee with them. I will direct them to the, you know, certain sex therapists, maybe in their area. And I try to find ones that are from their community, right? So that they may understand their client. That can really like culturally affect somebody. Like maybe they're from like a Muslim background, but they're talking to somebody that is white American or something that, you know, therapists may not be able to understand it from a cultural lens. Unfortunately, I'm not a therapist and I don't think I want to be, but I, I would direct people with certain therapists that I've come in contact with. So most of the work that you do would be like going into institutions to do like a group counseling format? I wouldn't say counseling, but I would say educating. I used to do workshops during the pandemic and that's where we can go into breakout rooms and have discussions or, you know, they can come into my office hours, so to speak, because I had so much free time, you know, (laughs) that was a good opportunity for me during Um, A good chunk of 2020 and part of 2021 was essentially breaking it down into certain groups. A part of, you know, when I was younger, I really wanted to be a teacher. And this is like an opportunity for me to kind of apply that. Uh, I broke it down into weeks and people can come in as they please. It was free, but, you know, you can donate um, because I'm a poor bitch. Um, (laughs) As you would like. And some people are really generous. I broke it down into like some simple things. So like anatomy, that's one place to start. But I I also try to make my classes like comprehensive and inclusive. If you look at any like sexuality based book or something, like it's, it's within a binary. They're still defining things in terms of like, oh, this is a female part. This is a male part. I like to think that like parts don't have a gender Mm. because they don't, you know, like a penis does not have a gender because only humans have gender, so to speak, and, and other species. You know, a certain part is only a part of you. And so I try to, uh, in my classes, say that, you know, like a certain part does not have a gender. It's like saying an arm has a gender. That's like so fucking weird, right? Um, so I try to ensure that everything is inclusive to everybody. So I try to say vulva to describe like anything surrounding like the vagina. I try to say penis for so on and so forth. One of my goals was to ensure that nobody felt triggered or anybody felt offended in any way, because I am a trans woman. I will say it on the record. I do have a penis. There are some women that have penises or trans women that have uh, vaginas or some people that may have something in between. And I think by saying anything for certain in a textbook that this is a male reproductive organ or a female one is very reductive. So I try to ensure that if it's coming from me, it's very queer friendly. It's very trans friendly, Uh, whether we're talking about anatomy, whether we're talking about like STIs, whether we're talking about reproduction, I tried to adjust to the people in the room. I'm, I'm very happy to have these conversations because again, maybe people are not having these conversations with people in their lives. Maybe they are in a household or maybe they are in a relationship that is maybe abusive, right? or controlling or toxic. And maybe I'm that one person that they can connect with and feel like uh, they won't be judged. What are some ways that, you know, allies can best serve the community? I may have some suggestions. Talk to, say, a trans person or a queer person, but understand that they they can't speak for the entire community. They can only give you their experiences and, and we're not a monolithic group. So if you want to, you would have to just like, do your own research. You would have to go out of your way to do that. But the good thing about that is that almost everybody has a device by their side. Yeah. Uh, you know, like you have all these resources at your disposal and you can definitely use it however you please. You know, I think the intent of it was to not only call people, but also if you needed information, you had it like as an educational resource. So there's that. I feel like, well, I worked on Netflix's disclosure. And our social media team is just so amazing. I would encourage people to give that a watch. I think our social media is good at calling people out like Dave Chappelle. We've called out Halle Berry. She was in the talks to work on this one film as a trans man. And we called her out, you know, the disclosure of social media. We said, hey, watch this movie and think about your privilege when you're going into this role that you're, you're taking something away from a trans man who could probably play with so much authenticity. 
you know, and, you know, I, and she rescinded from that movie. And I think, I think that was great. You know, disclosure is something that should be in schools. It should be something that she, you know, should have Q and A's and so on and so forth. And we are doing that for people who don't know, I should say disclosure is a documentary that I can't, I'm going to say an introductory documentary because it, it can't present everything, but it presents like a hundred plus years of transgender representation and misrepresentation. Hmm. So, and I think emphasis on misrepresentation because a lot of people who tell our stories are people that are not in, com- in the community who have these ideas about us and then they write them into characters, into storylines without thinking about trans people actually watching these, right? And we become the plot twist at the end of a season. Like I know at the end of season one of Ugly Betty, Rachel or something, right? She came out, uh, her character came out as like a trans woman. And that was ahead of its time in 2006, right? But she wasn't played by a trans actress, you know, a character to be feared. And, and we still kind of are when people see in a movie that like maybe the trans character is like the gender deviant person, like Norman in Psycho, he may not be a trans person, but he is performing a gender. He mm-hmm. is performing um, his into his mother in a sense. And that tells people who may not know anything about this community that, hey, you know, people that do stuff like that, that cross-dress, that do whatever, they're weird and they're scary and they are out here to murder us or to uh, like recruit us or convert us or whatever. And, and then that's how a lot of Black trans women are murdered, um, especially Black trans women. So it's really unfortunate, but I think having an introductory conversation with disclosure, it teaches you to think about this community a little bit more compassionately because 80% of people, according to GLAD, they don't know a trans person. So what we understand about trans people comes from the media. What's coming from the media is vastly far from, you know, any, you know, depiction of a real trans person, then you are walking away from a show with just um, miseducation. Get it from disclosure, which was directed by a trans man and who ensured that there were trans people on set. Like most of the people on set were trans people. So that's very unprecedented and also kind of shows the entertainment industry that like, hey, a movie can be made by trans people and be successful yes. and be on a you know, global streaming platform. And you know, it can have uh, trans people on the set and you know, still be great. By the way, also go hire these people because they, they made this movie possible. So, oh, right. Yes. Oh, voices, they have the skills to do yes. it. Yes. Absolutely. It takes so much like time acquiring all these archives from all of these shows. And we interviewed like such great fans, actors, celebrities, directors, producers, even historians like Susan Stryker, you know, just so they can talk about the first time they felt represented and whatnot or misrepresented. And when you have so little representation, you try to like grab hold of something. I I like to say the first time I felt like represented as a trans woman of color specifically was watching her story, which was a web show, six episodes on YouTube, and it was made by queer and trans women. Um, And I felt represented by Angelica Ross. This was the Mm -hmm. first time that I saw her in something and I thought, oh, wow, she's black, she's trans, she's like a lawyer, she's respected, and she's dating this this man who doesn't know that she's trans yet. Um, and you know, he he's still attracted to her, right? And I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil it, unfortunately, but for anybody that wants to watch it, but he finds out because it gets out there in um, the newspaper that she's trans and or something and how that's affecting her, her client that she she's representing. And he calls her up and he's like, Hey, we need to talk. And she's scared. Right. Like, and rightfully so they meet up in a you know public park for probably for her safety. And he's like, Hey, you should have told me that. And she said, should I have, you know, and he's taken aback. He did not expect that response. And I think she she could have defended herself. Um, she had an opportunity to explain herself more, but I think looking at her, like I understand the experience, like sometimes it's just so difficult just to explain yourself because you've done it so many times. And then in that beat, we, we turn to him and he says, I have a gambling problem. I didn't know when would have been the right time to mention that, which is, you know, whether you're trans or whether you have a gambling problem, whether you have another thing, we don't always leave with that on the first date, you know, Uh, we all have something that may be seen as like taboo or or whatnot. So watch uh, another thing that I would suggest people to do is like watch film and television by trans people, 
read articles by trans people, listen to, you know, credible news sites and, uh, and whatnot, like GLAAD and, you know, so on and so forth. I would have said, uh, keep up with Monica Roberts, who was the founder and like main journalist for Transgrio, but unfortunately she passed away last year. Um, I'm not sure if it was due to COVID, but she was always keeping track of basically everything in the news trans related. And I really looked up to her, but talking to trans people, real trans people, uh, whether that's through a chat room, whether that's through like a film or whether that's through connecting with people at your local um, LGBTQ plus thing. Um, there, there are platforms out there. If you feel like you, you can't, or you feel like you would be um, like ostracized if you went into like an LGBTQ resource center, that's where the internet comes in. And again, it is a beautiful resource for everybody out there. I love that because it's so true that education is the road to empathy. Like the more you know, the more you can associate somebody that you care about or somebody that you really liked as being something that seems unknown to you, then I think the, the better society gets with this, which I'm curious about, have you felt like there's been a transition or a switch in some of the conversations that you've been having in these groups discussions since the pandemic and as society seems to become slowly more progressive? That's a good question. I'm going to address your first note. Education does lead to empathy. There's a term for it. It's called the parasocial contact hypothesis. There is a word for it, like academically. <laughs> and, um, it came I know about... it. Just have that <laughs> Smart hoe over here. But, uh, <laughs> uh, essentially, it was coined in the 90s or like in the early 2000s. It addressed gay marriage tolerance. And how that came about, um, at least in the U.S., you know, obviously, as we know, that was kind of approved nationwide um, in about 2015, 2016. Great. You know, I, I'm all for that. But it was a slow process, obviously. And it came about through 90s representation. There was a lot of broadcasting and narrow casting of, of certain queer representation in the media. So I think it started with 30-something. There was a show called 30-something in the early 90s. We had um, a queer character, and I think that show was really called out and um, I think subse subsequently canceled because they didn't say it, the, the character didn't come out or anything, but he was in bed with a man and you could tell that they had just done it. And I think that was enough for people. And then not that long after, I mean, you're, you're getting some tiny queer characters here and there, but they're probably like supporting characters. As you've probably, you know, we've seen like in other shows, like um, maybe the Jeffersons, they've thrown one character or in the late 80s and 90s with the AIDS movement, they probably have an episode about AIDS or whatnot. It's just one character that, and we get introduced to like maybe one gay character and then we never see them again, which is unfortunate. So when we really get to see the emergence of queer conversations is when Ellen came out and how significant that was. Mm. Like the people that created the show, they didn't even think um, the show would last you know, beyond her coming out, but it did. It lasted one more season, the fourth season. She came out in the puppy, do uh, puppy dog episode at the end of season three. And since they didn't know what to do, like they were surprised that they got another season. They, that last season, they just kind of floundered, um, you know, unfortunately, but that gave rise to, um, you know, the last season they talked about, you know, they tried to show what it's like to be a lesbian or for Ellen to be a lesbian and whatnot, which is what I, you know, bring it back to El Marijuano, we show life long after coming out. Yeah, We do like maybe 20, 10 plus years after that. Cause we were so focused on coming out narratives, you know, mm -hmm. with Simon or, or whatnot, which is one of the first mainstream kind of like coming out of, of main characters that we, we hardly ever discuss characters that are queer and have probably come out a whole long time ago. They're just living their lives, whatever that may look like. Also, dealing with universal themes, like, you know, having access to healthcare that's going to allow them to get yeah. access to a therapist. Something that I think allies forget about all the time as members of the LGBTQ community have to come out every day. Just like you were saying, today you had to answer uncomfortable questions. It's not just this one time, and maybe you do have that one big moment, but we forget that it's something that the LGBTQ community has to deal with and disclose all the time. And we shouldn't even, we shouldn't have to, again, because straight people don't. Right. And I'm so lucky that we, we've kind of, um, Alejandro and I, when we were at the after party, we kind of 
just by chance, I think all of the queer screen screenwriters that were there, they kind of just sat down at the same table and <laughs> found each other. And that was so amazing. But I think we're lucky to be sharing stories like these because of, say, Ellen, and that gave rise to Will and Grace. And I think with the parasocial contact hypothesis is like after, with Will and Grace coming out, no pun intended, um, <laughs> you know, we were able to see through statistics that there were more and more people that were coming to accept gay marriage because they saw it on a major, not only on a major network, but uh, with characters that were predominantly queer. Uh, Kara, who is bisexual, Jack, obviously, who's like kind of a caricature of queer, uh, of gayness, and Will, who's a lawyer and also really uh, sassy and also really gay. So Joe Biden also um, points to Will Grace as one of those things that really um, changed his decision on gay marriage. So parasocial contact hypothesis, education does um, lead to empathy. We all go through more or less the same K through 12 education system, and yet we don't have this basic knowledge about sex. And that's so infuriating, right? Because we're more, more often than not, we're gonna be having sex. We've probably already been having sex in high school or something. And, and yet we're coming out of this, not learning about coming, you know, uh, as people with vaginas, um, you know, we're not learning about this or pleasure. We're not learning because uh, we not only not learn about our own bodies, but we, also don't learn about how we can um, engage with other people's bodies, which is what something a lot of people are doing all the time, all the time. And then you end up associating sex with like awkwardness or um, only one person's pleasure or, um, you know, dominance or uh, maybe fear or maybe a whole lot of shame. And maybe you may go, uh, there are maybe like 29 year olds, 40 year olds, 52 year olds who, who just like have so much shame uh, about their own bodies, about their own like sexual experiences and maybe their experiences with another person. It's so unfortunate that we do that. I know that there's definitely like one class that maybe we don't need that we keep taking yeah. in schools or whatnot. And that could be replaced with like financial literacy for maybe one semester and then like sexual education for like another semester. It's something that's completely doable. There are resources for it. Uh, you know, teenagers are already talking about sex as it is, right? Um, you may as well just already incorporate that. I should also say this, uh, a lot of people, I'm going to define sexuality for all of y'all in the audience. Thank you. Because yes, I think it's, it's something that is so like it's used interchangeably with sexual orientation and that's not exactly right. Sexuality is such a, it's a broad topic. It encompasses romantic and or sexual preferences, desires, and behaviors. That's an entire thing because romantic behaviors, desires, and preferences are so different than sexual ones, especially if you're like, say, an asexual person who's aromantic or on that aromantic spectrum or asexual and is some kind of asexual spectrum. It's the case where everything is on a spectrum. That's why everything's so constructed. And that looks like a lot. Desires are different than preferences are different than behaviors. There's so many kinds of behaviors that we can kind of look at. Can I jump in? Yeah, How sure. would you give some advice to someone who might be trying to separate each of what you're describing right now? Well, I do have a resource. So it's called <laughs> Gender Bread Person, which is really cute. <laughs> it, obviously, it goes after gingerbread man. But gender, you know, because we construct, you know, we, we need to talk about gender and how broad that is, right? Bread, because I mean, it's a, well, um, and then person, because we can't assume that person's identity, gender expression, yeah. sexuality, so on, or sexual orientation, so to speak. So I would advise people to kind of look at that and look at how complex things are. It has a diagram, so it points to certain things. So sex refers to like your genitalia and or like chromosomes, which, you know, is kind of crazy. Some people are like, oh, you know, but you don't have like, you can't be a woman if you have like XY chromosomes. And I like, think like, well, have you even looked at your own chromosomes? Have you like, <laughs> like, like yeah. talking about? Um, that's how it's so constructed. You know, so it points to like sex. It points to like the genitalia of the genderbred person. And when it comes to identity that comes up here, people think like, oh, I can make up my own thing in like whatever. But everything is up here. Our brains are so powerful and, you know, and expression, it points to like all of the body because how we express ourselves in terms of like Alejandro's makeup, how we express ourselves in terms of our clothes, our mannerisms. That's a good resource. I worry about the people in the middle of the country. How do we help them? And how do we make sure that they have these same resources and feel comfortable being in their identity? Ooh. I want to start like just addressing it within families, but that's so difficult because it's all 
generational, right? We all mm-hmm. pass down like, oh, if my parents did talk about it, I'm not going to talk about it with you. I think at some point Tumblr helped a lot of people come out. It's really mm-hmm. interesting, but using again, the internet as a platform, mm-hmm. there's lots of uh, movies out and shows out there that show like all kinds of facets of queerness you kind of have to look at it and and kind of see like oh is that something I'm interested in a lot of people like to use the thing like some people say to like gay people and lesbians like oh you don't know unless you try it with another person you know or you try it like uh, with a woman or with a man and then and then you'll know that you're straight or something and sometimes it's not simple so that simple sometimes it is that simple you know we're experimenting whatever feels comfortable for you. And you have to kind of discern like, oh, does this feel comfortable because I've never done this before? And, or does this feel comfortable because it doesn't feel right? You know, it's such a a strange thing to kind of process, Um, especially if you don't know anybody in your community, in your neighborhood that identifies as any of these things, it can get really scary, especially if your parents are saying, oh, don't talk to that old man. He, he's like, he's a child molester and they may only mean like, he's just a gay man. He may, he may yeah. have never molested somebody in his life, but your priest might, I don't know. Um, I want to ask Alejandro, like, I feel like I can't adequately answer that question. It's, it's so, it's so broad. How do you feel like, you know, some people can kind of, kind of come into their identities? When I came out at the age that I did, I wasn't surrounded by a community where I felt like it was possible to come into my own at the time that I was very much in the Midwest and my in my teenage years. So it was definitely, it was a very challenging time frame. I think one of the pieces of advice that I would give in order to really, I guess, come to terms with one's identity is just listening to what that voice inside, the whisper inside. Yeah, I want to bring it back to Oprah. There's a great podcast episode on, you know, the whispers that exist within us where it's just like we really have to pay attention to those as annoying as they may be the louder they can get and the more persistent that they can articulate a particular message there's a reason that's coming into our neural pathways there's a reason that we should be hearing you know the clamoring of the pots and pans as those messages are being given to us i guess the only piece of advice that i can give is just like it doesn't matter where you are like you just have to trust yourself and know that like what you're doing is right for you. So. Well, I think our letter writer today could use some clamoring of the pots and pans and positive rewards. We have Dear Damsels. I'd like to start off by saying I started and deleted this letter multiple times. I would also like to say that I am appreciative that this podcast is not just geared toward heterosexual relationships and particularly grateful for Alejandro's perspective and calm wisdom. Okay, thank you, listener. Don't. <laughs> I have been with my partner going on three years, and lately I have begun to explore more of a gender-fluid identity. I had always felt I had exhibited more of a feminine side, but felt apprehensive about exploring that until recently society, parentheses, and many of my friends, close parentheses, became more open about expressing themselves that way. In a way, I feel the most free and honest I have ever felt in my life. In another way, I also feel the most stifled by my relationships as ever. My boyfriend didn't want to date someone feminine, and my exploration of a gender identity has really freaked him out. He feels that although we connect on a soul level, we are now missing an attraction component with my exploration. Is it possible to make this work? And if I want to be with him, do I have to give up this new sense of freedom? Love always, personal or partner, prisoner. I feel like this is not black or white. Well, first of all, I, I want to thank you for sharing that. That must You must have felt very vulnerable to have written this letter so many times and sent it out. Uh, I'd like to ask you, listener, what do you feel internally? And it's, you've mentioned that you feel very, like, like this is the most free you've ever felt in your life. And that's great. I'm going to say that there is a term in psychology, essentially it's called FOE, field of eligibles. It's a way of saying like the things that you, um, you're attracted to in a person. And if what you're attracted, like if somebody were to ask you like, what are you attracted to? You might like giggle and be like, oh, well, I don't know. Um, and just kind of think about it. Um, like, oh, I'm generally into this, blah, 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 blah. But you have to also think about like, oh, what are non-negotiables? Like, oh, my partner has to be this. He has to be that, or she has to be this, or they have to be that, so on and so forth. And the things that you can compromise on, like, okay, well, I prefer, I feel like a lot of women are into taller guys. There's nothing wrong with that. No, it's like, okay. Yeah, yes, exactly. Whether it's height, whether it's like a personality trait, uh, for me, like a non-negotiable is like, I'm not into 
guys I'm, I'm attracted to guys uh guys that like drink a lot I think it kind of reminds me of my dad when I was younger I definitely mm. I see how my mom contends with that that's a non-negotiable for me but I'm okay with like a partner that like drinks on occasion you know so on and so forth so you feel most free good for you I'm, I'm glad that you felt that kind of freedom and um, I hope that you and your partner can kind of uh, talk about this, your your feminine side and how great that is and ask your partner, like, maybe like, why are you not, you know, kind of start off every conversation with like, okay, let's operate on a one mic rule, like one person mm-hmm. speak at a time, no interrupting, because, you know, that can kind of lead to an argument and talking over each other and nothing gets solved with that. So one mic rule. Pretend you're on a podcast makes it real easy. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah. Just ask your partner, like, why are you not so interested in that? Like, have you ever been attracted to like maybe feminine people before? I feel like I'm more comfortable this way. You know, something has to be said about being attracted to each other too. If yes. you feel like your partner can't genuinely can't get over that and your partner admits to that, that's a conversation to be had as well. It may not necessarily mean breaking up. It may not necessarily mean staying together. It just starts with a conversation. You have to value yourself because I feel like there, there may be somebody out there that values that feminine side of you. And yeah. it's a matter of not only personal exploration, which you've kind of come across, but also with a potential partner and somebody that can appreciate that. Because attraction can go, it's so essential in a relationship. If you don't feel attracted to each other at that point, or if it's one-sided, that is very concerning. I do hope the best for you. I feel like I I, want to ask Lauren and Alejandro what you guys think about this. I think it's very courageous that you sent us this letter. And I think it says something that you did feel so apprehensive about sending this letter. And to me, what it says is that you were a little bit afraid of the answer And sometimes you need somebody to give you a little push into a situation that's a hard decision to make. And I know that I've been there before where there were things that I didn't want to hear, things that I knew my friends or family knew that I should be making a decision in a certain direction that I wasn't ready to hear. And so I didn't ask. But because you did decide to ask, I think you're nearing that point. I think that you are going through a situation where you know that this relationship is not going to work out for you long-term because you feel so free and confident in this newfound identity that you're discovering for yourself. I think that this partner is going to regret not supporting you in this identity because I think that you're going to have this incredible confidence to you and this like beautiful aura that people are just naturally attracted to when people are comfortable with being themselves. So I think that it's going to be like this situation where you can no longer be with that partner anymore because they're not supporting you. And also because this new identity that you're shifting towards is so much more exciting than this relationship that you're leaving behind. And I think that that doesn't mean that it was a bad relationship. I think that relationships always serve purpose. And I think that this relationship was a stepping stone to get you to where you're going. But I think that you need to realize that you're going somewhere. And I don't know that you want to take somebody who doesn't support where you're going with you. I also want to draw attention to where it says, my boyfriend didn't want to date someone feminine and my exploration of gender identity has really freaked him out. That part really stuck out to me when reading this letter because it was just like, if the exploration of rather than the testament of anything either way, if that alone was enough to like give the partner incentive to give a reaction that was super unsettling and ultimately not consoling for the person who's going through the journey, if that person's just a bison, I feel like those are specific red flags that should be taken note of very seriously, you know, moving forward, because I mean, no one wants to let in a source of energy that's not going to be supportive. Yeah, if, if the exploration enough is something that freaks them out, imagine you being your full self. And I'm sure your full self, when you get there, you're going to love it. Trust me. Yeah. But you're going back to your question, right? Do I have to give up this new sense of freedom? Everybody's entitled to their own freedom, their own self autonomy, their own self independence. If you feel like you have to compromise that for somebody that may not appreciate it or may not be attracted to it, like Lauren said, right? It may be time to consider leaving and to have your uh, partner have the option as well. There's a certain choice to it. And if you feel like it's not going to be appreciated, it seems like you've made a choice. You've made your choice and it's okay to stick with that, but also kind of hear about your partner. You know, in any relationship, there is 
compromise, there's sacrifices to be made, but sacrificing your own sense of freedom. I, I, I can't imagine being in a closet for so long just to feel like you're hiding a part of yourself again. It's, it must be scary to just kind of crawl back into that shell. When I was coming out, I don't think I really necessarily came out. I just kind of like did my thing and had people deal with me, hmm. uh, which is also really scary. I may have looked tough while I was doing it, but you know, I would have like routine um, haircuts, like during certain times of year, like Easter, Thanksgiving, so on and so forth. And it was like Thanksgiving time. He was going to cut my hair and he was going to do it. I'm like, Hey, don't do the top. I like my bangs, you know, like they're long enough that they look like bangs and it makes me feel feminine. Like, don't do that. And he's like, okay, cool. Gotcha. Gotcha. He was doing my sides. And he went straight for the top and like, oh my God, no. So I got up and I'm like, what the heck is the matter with you? And he was like shouting and cursing and, um, not really understanding where I was coming from. And so I left and I was angry. I'm like, how, can, how dare he? He violated me in a sense. He violated my hair and hair is so important in the black community. So, you know, and I felt guilty because like my dad was mumbling to himself and I, I shouldn't have felt guilty. I'm the victim in that kind of scenario, so to speak. And I went back in and I'm like, okay, I'll give you another chance. And I sat down and he went for my hair again. And I'm like, nope, I'm done. I set a boundary. I'm growing it out, F and deal with it, you know, and very similar thing with my sister who my, I'm really, really close to. She, she gave me a dress. She knew from like a really young age that I wanted to be um, a girl. And so she gave me a dress that I still have to this day. And it was the first time I kind of like tried it on without feeling judged by at least one person other than myself. And she's like, oh, it looks good on you. And I was going to go to your friend's giving with my friends at the local park. I was, I think about 14 at the time. My dad's like, I'm not going to take you if you're going to look ridiculous like that. And I'm like, oh my God, I try to argue with him. And I'm like, okay, I'm going nowhere with this. And my point is, there's always another way. There is always another way where you're not compromising your own sense of freedom, but you're also, you know, letting other kind of people kind of deal with you. And if they can't take it, then again, you kind of move on. So what I did, my, my solution at the time was I decided to wear the dress, but put boys clothes over it. So when he was taking me, as mm. he was taking me, we got closer. I took off the boys clothes and I said, fuck you. And I walked out of the car. A way of coming out, so to speak, there are no real words I had <laughs> to say like, oh, I'm trans or I'm whatever. But it was like, hey, I feel really comfortable wearing this dress, which at the time I'm like, I looked maybe trashy. Like my hair was like in between phrase, you know, phases. I had strained my hair like all my life. And it was just like, it didn't know what it wanted to do with itself. And I wore a dress and, you know, I'd already gone so long in my life where I'm like, okay, I didn't. Maybe I, you know, one time I wore my sister's prom dress in secret and she found out and she got super mad at me. And I'm like, I shouldn't have to do this in secret, you know? And so doing it out and about, you know, with, with myself and all my friends complimented me and again, feeling myself and feeling appreciated. It starts with yourself. If you feel like you adore yourself, you feel like you're getting into where you want to be in your identity and you have your own self-appreciation, that's more than enough, right? To kind of give you the, the solution that you need. And if nobody else is going to do that, including the person that you've kind of invested your time, energy, money and affection with, then, you know, it's may, it may be worth having this person and maybe still in your life, if they're able to still deal and you still have like this affection for each other and friendship, maybe still keep them in your life, but setting a boundary, like, Hey, this is me. If you're not attracted to me, that's cool. Um, maybe it may be one-sided, but you don't have to not be in my life there's still something there. We did start off as friends or something and we could still salvage something, but it's a matter of like, okay, you're not attracted to me anymore, but somebody else may be. And uh, healing from that, also yeah. healing. I think that that doesn't get enough attention, but healing from that, wallowing in, in kind of that, that loss, mourn from that loss and then go out there and be feminine, your feminine self, the the yes. way that you feel and, and embrace yourself. It's not worth hiding, yeah. especially if you're doing it so long. So going off of both of your points, I think that's, that's something. Thank you for sharing this. It's it's such a difficult thing, but I mean, you really entrusted Lauren and Alejandro to, to like um, admit this. And that itself, like Lauren said, is, is, is an act of bravery. And if you're brave yes. enough to write it out and, you know, feel invested enough to do that, then you're brave enough to be your true self as you're meant to be. Thank you so much for sharing your story and relating to them too. Absolutely. I will say one last thing about partners in this letter. I think that partners are people too, and they're allowed to be apprehensive about the decisions that their partner will make. I think the problem is when you see your partner 
enjoying something so much and finding some honest truth to themselves that you don't support them and you can't be happy for them. Because I think in a relationship, when you see your partner truly happy and enjoying something, that should just honestly and truthfully make you happy. And I'll share something personal. Brian, really my boyfriend for you don't know the listeners have heard me talk about it too often, really did not want me to get a dog. It was the worst argument and I'm not being dramatic that we have ever had in our almost six years of dating. I was crying, so upset. I got the dog. Brian loves the dog now. And it's not just a testament to how much he loves the dog, but also to see how happy this dog makes me. That's because it was a situation that he was apprehensive about. I made the decision regardless of his opinion, because that's what I do. And then he was able to see that happiness and be supportive because that's what a healthy relationship does. So I think the break that I'm seeing from this letter writer is your partner is apprehensive. You made your decision and they still did not support you and they're still not happy for you. So that's what I think you need to look at and really address with yourself. And is this relationship worth it if they're not supporting you on something that makes you happy? We are all responsible for our own happiness and we can invite or reject the outside influences that can either contribute to that happiness or be an obstacle. And it's a blessing that we all have individuals in our lives to support us along the way. It's a journey for us all. So it's fucking dope. This was such a beautiful conversation, though. Thank you so, so much for coming on. I feel like I could talk to you all day. Seriously. Thank you so much. Likewise, you guys have such like really attractive, soothing voices. But I think that makes sense because you guys have a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for having me. Um, One last thing. It's okay for attraction to to die. Everything kind of like serves its purpose. Like Lauren said, you can go on to the next thing. But sometimes like you may have used up all of the resources in your relationship. I'm not going to say it's constructive, but sometimes it can die naturally. And that's that's perfectly fine. Um, Love doesn't have to be one person, you know. We can love so many times. Child of divorce, so. (laughs) (laughs) On a positive note, Jocelyn, tell us, where can our listeners follow you, keep up with your work? Please stalk me at uh, funky.nerd, which is at funky.nurd. So you can find me there on um, IG, Twitter. I very rarely, very rarely use, but you can find me on there. It is at funky i think underscore and you rd and you can find me on facebook i don't have a tiktok yet let me see i think that's kind of it or again you can follow me in real life and i will call the cops on you and you will be arrested (laughs) (laughs) but seriously thank you so much for coming on and being so honest and truthful with our listeners i know that this was such an important conversation this is an amazing conversation thank you so much for your time and the willingness to come on seriously oh just your gold, your platinum, your diamond, darling. You're such a gem. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. Until next time. Ernie, tell them. It's going down in the DMs. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> DMs, DMs. We don't need them. We just leave them. Please. Yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.